Patients who are not forthcoming about their alcohol history jeopardize our ability to provide the best possible clinical care. Many instruments, such as the CAGE, rely only on patient self-report. Luckily, we have several biomarkers to assist us. How and when to use which test? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, and with me today is Dr. David Spiegel. Dr. Spiegel is an Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and Director of the Consult Liaison Service at Eastern Virginia Medical School. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Spiegel. Thank you, Dr. Lunt. It is a pleasure to be here. Dr. Spiegel, why is it important for us to know how to use biomarkers to detect alcohol use? Well, Dr. Lunt, I think it's from two different perspectives I feel it's important. First, from a psychiatric perspective, I feel that there are two acute psychiatric emergencies that psychiatrists often confront. The first would be lethality, such as suicidality and homicidality, but the second would be alcohol withdrawal with possible complications to delirium tremens or DTs. By recognizing who's at risk for alcohol withdrawal or DTs, we can prevent it by treating with the appropriate medications, i.e. benzodiazepines, and thus prevent a possible significant mortality of up to 20%. But in terms of regular primary care physicians, 10 to 25% of patients underreport their alcohol use. So as physicians, I think we need to be aware that about after four to six weeks of heavy drinking, this substantially increases the risk for alcohol withdrawal, and most important, like I said, can lead to DTs, which would be a complication in the medical part of the hospital. Makes sense. So you don't necessarily go along with the belief that you just double whatever the patient says as far as how much they're drinking? Well, I, I, you can do that, and I often find that, that patients definitely underreport. but I like to think that even if they're saying they're, they're uh, doubling from two to four, from four to eight. It takes about four to six solid weeks of drinking before the risk occurs. And so these alcohol biomarkers, one thing good about them is that they don't lie. You may have false positives and false negatives, but they definitely don't lie. And that's I think, is a little better objective way of assessing alcohol misuse. Okay. Well, let's start off with blood alcohol level. We all know about that. But is it only helpful if the patient is acutely intoxicated? Yeah. As a rule, I think that's the only time they are helpful. And certainly within 24 hours, the blood alcohol is going to lead us into a false sense of security, i.e. it is going to read a false negative with respect to uh, risk of alcohol withdrawal. And unfortunately, I see that many times where in the emergency room or on the medical surgical service, a blood alcohol is the only assessment for alcohol misuse ordered. And once it comes back negative, there is no other screening for this. Yeah, makes sense. What is the half-life of alcohol? Well, alcohol's got about a four-hour half-life and about an elimination rate of seven grams per hour which then is equal to about one standard drink per hour. An example of a standard drink can be 12 ounces of beer, 5 ounces of wine, or a nice shot of hard liquor. Therefore, by the time they do reach the emergency room, we're not even getting an accurate assessment of what their blood alcohol is because they will have time in transport to have the blood alcohol being lowered. Right. By the time they actually get their blood drawn, who knows how long it's been. Now, another marker we've used for decades is the MCV. When is macrocytosis useful in this context? Well, macrocytosis, a mean corpuscular volume, is actually helpful as it does elevate after about six weeks of alcohol misuse. So in that respect, if someone is a chronic drinker, that value will rise. And is the cutoff still 100? Yeah, at this point, we still use 100 femtoliters as the cutoff value for macrocytosis. But I will tell you that there are experts in the field 
who think that once you have an MCV greater than 90 femtoliters, that there is a cause for concern, especially in the appropriate clinical setting where alcohol is suspected. Wow, so even 90. Okay. There are some people believe as as high as 90 or as low as 90. Low as 90, yeah. How long does it stay elevated if the patient does manage to stop drinking? Generally speaking, about two to three months, the MCV will stay elevated. But the one thing you need to keep in account is that the sensitivity of an increased MCV ranges between 20 to 70 percent and with the specificity in the mid-60s. So again, there are other things, as we know, that can elevate an MCV. So we can't rely on that solely as a test. But I will tell you that it's not unusual. That's the only uh, alcohol biomarker, if you would, that is ordered on a chart by the time I do a consultation. Yeah, not surprising. That's what we were all trained with, right? Yeah, and you'd be, you'd be more surprised when we talk about it, if we ever get into, we talk about our liver function tests, how rarely that's ordered initially. Huh. Well, let's do it. Let's move on to liver function tests. Which are most reliable as a biomarker for alcohol use? Well, there are generally four that are in, well, I should say four that are used and three in common practice. Three familiar to most people, I think, would be the AST, which is aspartate aminotransferase, the ALT, which is alanine aminotransferase, and the GGT, which is gamma-glutamyl transferase. But the fourth one, which is the only one that actually has an FDA indication for alcohol misuse, is CDT, or carbohydrate-deficient transferrin. And one that most of us don't order. One that not only one of us don't order, including my hospital, because it is expensive. It's expensive, and, and unfortunately, few institutes, unless they're tertiary care centers, will have access to CDT. But the good news is there is good news that with a combination of liver function tests, we can get a pretty reliable assessment of whether or not it's a person in risk for withdrawal. So, for instance, if you combine the AST to ALT ratio, and that's greater than 2 to 1, you have about a 70% sensitivity of picking up alcohol misuse. And even better, you have a 92 to 100% specificity for alcohol-induced liver disease. What that means is the AST-ALT ratio is less than 2 to 1. It's a pretty good chance they're not going to go into withdrawal. However, I'll take it one step further. If you have a ratio of greater than 3 to 1, then that's almost diagnostic for alcohol misuse unless proven otherwise. So AST to ALT ratio greater than 3, you're in trouble. Yeah, AST, well, the patient's in trouble. You and me are fine, but the patient's in trouble. We need to treat them right away. Right. Now, I always thought the GGT was the best. GGT is very good, actually. I think GGT is actually better than the AST to ALT ratio, and I think it's much more common to use the GGT as assessment than this ratio, but I think we were taught in medical school that GGT is the best test. Only recently has the AST to ALT ratio been taught in medical students to assess alcohol misuse. So how about the GGT? How long does it stay elevated after one stops drinking? It's about two to six weeks that will remain elevated uh, at the alcohol cessation, but Interestingly, it takes about two to four weeks to become elevated upon heavy alcohol usage. When I mean heavy alcohol usage, I mean about daily alcohol uh, usage greater or equal to six drinks per day. And again, we're talking about six standard drinks, either the 12 ounces of beer, the five ounces of wine, or the uh, shot glass. So if a patient says, oh, well, I just uh, partied last night, and that's why my blood test is abnormal today, but usually I don't drink, should we believe them or no? Well, again, I think in the context that there's nothing else that's raising the GGT, and I'll be the first to admit that bile disease can raise GGT, other alcohol disease can raise GGT. 
but in the appropriate clinical setting where there's nothing else present other than an elevated GGT. And again, elevated is going to put you somewhere in the vicinity of greater than uh, 60. Then as a result, I would kind of not take their assessment as being accurate. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. David Spiegel from the Eastern Virginia Medical School. We are discussing how to decide which blood tests to perform to determine alcohol misuse. David, which of all these tests is the most sensitive for heavy drinking? Well, Leslie, now that we get to it, it's the one test we haven't talked about, which is the uh, carbohydrate-deficient transferrin, as that has a sensitivity of up to 90% of picking up heavy alcohol misuse and a specificity of about 85%. Now, you mentioned that it was expensive. How much are we talking here? I think we're talking about $20 per assay to check this out, where liver fun- basic liver function tests and GGT are in the dollar ranges. So it's definitely more expensive, and I'm using it on as many patients that come into a hospital with alcohol misuse. You're probably talking about a lot more money. So what's the best test? We've been talking about kind of acute abuse. What is the best test to determine if the patient has relapsed? So they've been sober, and now they just started drinking again. Another super question, Dr. Lant, and let me tell you how this will work. Okay, the CDT will take only about one to two weeks to elevate with greater than five standard drinks. So as a result, say a patient's been abstinent for two months or three months from alcohol, and then they only start drinking one week afterwards. The CDT is going to pick this up with possibly within one week, and as a result, the relapse sensitivity for CDT is high as 76%. You want to compare that to a GGT or the other LFTs, where you're talking about, again, possibly anywhere up to four to six weeks of heavy drinking. So while that may be a better test, the liver function test and GGT may be a better test to pick up risk for alcohol withdrawal, in terms of actual relapse uh, sensitivity, the CDT is going to be the most efficient test. Now, do we need a patient's consent to order these labs? Actually, the only thing I would say is as much as a physician needs a patient consent to order a CBC or routine LFTs, which is generally by patients signing in, they kind of give you that consent, that's the same level that you're going to need to get any of these tests ordered. So just like any other lab test for anything. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. There's no, there's no special consent, nothing to sign. They're, they just work them up. Okay. So it seems to me if you're working in an ER or an urgent care kind of setting, you probably get this on everybody, wouldn't you? I do. I mean, when someone, if in a, if keep in mind, I'm a psychiatrist, so, I mean, alcohol and drug abuse are part of my daily living. And so, as a result, anytime I see someone in the ER, and I'm in the ER here at Eastern Virginia Medical School, about three times a week, they'll only draw, the emergency physician will only draw a blood alcohol and a urine drug screen. And without ordering the GGT, the AST, or ALT, because we don't have access to the CDT, they're missing the potential risk of the person developing withdrawal in the ER setting. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And certainly I've been known to begin alcohol detox in the ER setting to prevent what you don't want to happen, the worst complication of DTs. Right. And, you know, any of us that have worked in the emergency room knows that even after you decide to admit them, it usually takes several hours to make that happen. So if you can start it earlier, it makes sense. Absolutely. And even a patient's not going to leave the ER, say for some reason they're not going to be admitted for whatever reason. It's not uncommon. In the good old days, in the 80s okay, and the 90s, we used to start people out on chlorodiazepoxide or Librium. And so it's not unusual for me to to give a patient 75 milligrams or 100 milligrams of Librium if they are at some type of risk but haven't started showing symptoms yet and just tell them that if they start feeling the symptoms of nausea, vomiting, headache, 
tachycardia, et cetera, that they should come back to the ER as soon as possible. Any resources to help our physician listeners who want to review this material? Uh, yes, actually, now that you mentioned it, Leslie, I think I have a great article that might help clinicians very much. Part of the reason why I say it's a great article is because I was the lead author. And the article is through currentpsychiatry.com. So it's one word, currentpsychiatry.com. It's in the September 2008 issue, Volume 7, Number 9. And the article is entitled, and it's a catchy title because they came up with it, quote, I'm sober, doc, really, close quote, <laughs> best biomarkers for underreported alcohol use. And so I'm rather proud of the article. I had three other co-authors who I'd like to mention now, Nitu Dodwal, who's a resident physician, as well as Francis Gill, who's a resident physician, and Diana Raddick, who's a third-year medical student here at Eastern Virginia Medical School. Well, it's something certainly that no matter what our, our specialty is that we come in contact with more than we probably wish we did. So I think everybody should read this material. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you. they enjoy it. Thanks so much for being on our show today. It is a pleasure. Thank you again. I appreciate your time. We've been speaking with Dr. David Spiegel from Eastern Eastern Virginia Medical School about the pros and cons of different biomarkers to detect underreported alcohol use. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Or you can call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-639-6157. Once again, that's 888-639-6157. Thank you for listening. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals.